0: Chapter twenty three of Indian Summer by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter twenty three Colville went back to his own room and spent a good deal of time in the contemplation of a suit of clothes adapted to the season which had been sent home from the tailor's just before mr Waters came in the coat was of the lightest serge, the trousers of a pearly gray tending to lavender, the waistcoat of cool white duck. On his way home from Palazzo Pinti he had stopped in via Tornabuoni and bought some silk-gauze neckties of a tasteful gaiety of tint, which he had at the time thought very well of. But now, as he spread out the whole array on his bed, It seemed too emblematic of a light and blameless spirit for his wear. He ought to put on something as nearly analogous to sackcloth as a modern stock of dry goods afforded. He ought at least to wear the grave materials of his winter costume. But they were really insupportable in this sudden access of summer. Besides, he had grown thin during his sickness, and the things bagged about him— if he were going to see Miss Bowen that evening, he ought to go in some decent shape. It was perhaps providential that he had failed to find her at home in the morning, when he had ventured thither in the clumsy attire in which he had been loafing about her drawing-room for the past week. He now owed it to her to appear before her as well as he could. How charmingly punctilious she always was herself! As he put on his new clothes, he felt the moral support which the becomingness of dress alone can give. With the blue silk gauze lightly tied under his collar, and the lapels of his thin coat thrown back to admit his thumbs to his waistcoat-pockets, he felt almost cheerful before his glass. Should he shave? As once before this important question occurred to him. His thinness gave him some advantages of figure, but he thought that it made his face older. What effect would cutting off his beard have upon it? He had not seen the lower part of his face for fifteen years. No one could say what recent ruin of a double chin might not be lurking there. He decided not to shave, at least till after dinner, and after dinner he was too impatient for his visit to brook the necessary delay. He was shown into the salato alone. But Effie Bowen came running in to meet him. She stopped suddenly, bridling. "'You never expected to see me looking quite so pretty,' said Colville, tracing the cause of her embarrassment to his summer splendor. "'Where is your mamma?" "She is in the dining-room,' replied the child, getting hold of his hand. "'She wants you to come and have coffee with us.' "'By all means. Not that I haven't had coffee already, though.' She led the way, looking up at him shyly over her shoulder as they went. Mrs. Bowen rose, napkin in lap, and gave him a hand of welcome. "'How are you feeling today?" she asked, politely ignoring his finery. "'Like a new man,' he said. And then he added, to relieve the strain of the situation, "'of the best tailors make in Florence.' "'You look very well,' she smiled. "'Oh, I always do when I take pains,' said Colville. The trouble is that I don't always take pains, but I thought I would to-night in calling upon a lady." Effie will feel very much flattered, said Mrs. Bowen. Don't refuse a portion of the satisfaction, he cried. Oh, is it for me, too? This gave Colville consolation which no religion or philosophy could have brought him, and his pleasure was not marred, but rather heightened by the little pangs of expectation bred by long custom, that from moment to moment Imogene would appear. She did not appear, and a thrill of security succeeded upon each alarm. He wished her well with all his heart. Such is the human heart that he wished her arrived home the betrothed of that excellent, that wholly unobjectionable young man, Mr. Morton. "'Will you have a little of the ice before your coffee?' asked Mrs. Bowen, proposing one of the molded creams with her spoon. "'Yes, thank you. Perhaps I will take it in place of the coffee. They forgot to offer us any ice at the Table d'Hote this evening.' "'This is rather luxurious for us,' said Mrs. Bowen. "'It's a compromise with Effie. She wanted me to take her to Jacosa's this afternoon.' "'I thought you would come,' whispered the child to Colville. Her mother made a little face of mock surprise at her don't give yourself away effie why let us go to giacosa's too said colville taking the ice we shall be the only foreigners there and we shall not even feel ourselves foreign it's astonishing how the hot weather has dispersed the tourists i didn't see a bidecker on the whole way up here and i walked down via tornabuoni across through porto rosso and the piazza della signoria and the uffizi You've no idea how comfortable and home-like it was, all the statues loafing about in their shirt-sleeves, and the objects of interest stretching and yawning round, and having a good rest after their winter's work. Effie understood Colville's way of talking well enough to enjoy this. Her mother did not laugh. "'Walked?' she asked. "'Certainly. Why not? You are getting well again. You'll soon be gone, too.' "'I've got well.' But as to being gone, there's no hurry. I rather think I shall wait now to see how long you stay. "'We may keep you all summer,' said Mrs. Bowen, dropping her eyelids indifferently. "'Oh, very well, all summer it is, then. Mr. Waters is going to stay, and he is such a very cool old gentleman that I don't think one need fear the wildest antics of the mercury where he is.' When Colville had finished his ice, Mrs. Bowen led the way to the Salotto, and they all sat down by the window there, and watched the sunset die on San Miniato. The bronze copy of Michelangelo's David, in the piazzale below the church, blackened in perfect relief against the pink sky, and then faded against the gray while they talked. They were so domestic that Colville realized with difficulty that this was an image of what might be— rather than what really was, the very ease with which he could apparently close his hand upon the happiness within his grasp unnerved him. The talk strayed hither and thither, and went and came aimlessly. A sound of singing floated in from the kitchen, and Effie eagerly asked her mother if she might go and see Madalena. Madalena's mother had come to see her, and she was from the mountains. "'Yes, go,' said Mrs. Bowen but don't stay too long.' "'Oh, I will be back in time,' said the child, and Colville remembered that he had proposed going to Jocosa's. "'Yes, don't forget.' He had forgotten it himself. Madalena is the cook,' explained Mrs. Bowen. "'She sings ballads to Effie that she learned from her mother, and I suppose Effie wants to hear them at first hand.' "'Oh, yes,' said Colville, dreamily. "'They were alone now.' and each little silence seemed freighted with a meaning deeper than speech. "'Have you seen Mr. Waters to-day?' asked Mrs. Bowen, after one of these lapses. "'Yes, he came this afternoon.' "'He is a very strange old man. I should think he would be lonely here.' "'He seems not to be. He says he finds company in the history of the place, and his satisfaction at having got out of Haddam East Village is perennial.' but he will want to go back there before he dies. "'I don't know. He thinks not. He's a strange old man, as you say. He has the art of putting all sorts of ideas into people's heads. Do you know what we talked about this afternoon?' "'No, I don't,' murmured Mrs. Bowen. "'About you.' "'And he encouraged me to believe—imagine—that I might speak to you—' ask, tell you that— I loved you, Lena. He leaned forward and took one of the hands that lay in her lap. It trembled with a violence inconceivable in relation to the perfect quiet of her attitude, but she did not try to take it away. Could you—do you love me? Yes, she whispered. But here she sprang up and slipped from his hold altogether, as with an inarticulate cry of rapture he released her hand to take her in his arms. He followed her a pace or two. "'And you will—will be my wife?' he pursued eagerly. "'Never,' she answered. And now Colville stopped short, while a cold bewilderment bathed him from head to foot. It must be some sort of jest, though he could not tell where the humor was— and he could not treat it otherwise than seriously. Lena, I have loved you from the first moment that I saw you this winter, and heaven knows how long before. Yes, I know that. And every moment. Oh, I know that, too. Even if I had no sort of hope that you cared for me, I loved you so much that I must tell you before we parted. I expected that. I intended it you intended it and you do love me and yet you won't ah i don't understand how could you understand i love you i blush and burn for shame to think that i love you but i will never marry you i can at least help doing that and i can still keep some little trace of self-respect how you must really despise me to think of anything else after all that has happened did you suppose that i was merely waiting till that poor girl's back was turned as you were oh how can you be yourself and still be yourself yes jenny wheelwright was right you are too much of a mixture theodore colville her calling him so showed how often she had thought of him so too much for her Too much for Imogene, too much for me, too much for any woman except some wretched creature who enjoys being trampled on and dragged through the dust, as you have dragged me. I dragged you through the dust? There hasn't been a moment in the past six months when I wouldn't have rolled myself in it to please you. Oh, I know that well enough. And do you think that was flattering to me?' that has nothing to do with it. I only know that I love you, and that I couldn't help wishing to show it, even when I wouldn't acknowledge it to myself. That is all. And now, when I'm free to speak, and you own that you love me, you won't—' "'I give it up,' he cried desperately, but in the next breath he implored, "'Why do you drive me from you, Lena?' "'Because you have humiliated me too much.' she was perfectly steady but he knew her so well that in the twilight he knew what bitterness there must be in the smile which she must be keeping on her lips i was here in the place of her mother her best friend and you made me treat her like an enemy you made me betray her and cast her off i yes you I knew from the very first that you did not really care for her, that you were playing with yourself as you were playing with her, and I ought to have warned her. It appears to me you did warn her, said Colville, with some resentful return of courage. I tried, she said simply, and it made it worse. It made it worse because I knew that I was acting for my own sake more than hers, because I wasn't disinterested. There was something in this explanation, serious, tragic as it was to Mrs. Bowen, which made Colville laugh. She might have had some perception of its effect to him, or it may have been merely from a hysterical helplessness, but she laughed too a little. "'But why,' he gathered courage to ask, "'do you still dwell upon that? Mr. Waters told me that Mr. Morton—that there was—' "'He is mistaken.' He offered himself, and she refused him. He told me. Oh! Do you think she would do otherwise with you lying here between life and death? No, you can have no hope from that. Colville, in fact, had none. This blow crushed and dispersed him. He had not strength enough to feel resentment against Mr. Waters for misleading him with his ignis fatuus. No one warned him. "'And it came to that,' said Mrs. Bowen. "'It was of a piece with the whole affair. "'I was weak in that, too.' Colville did not attempt to reply on this point. He feebly reverted to the inquiry regarding himself, and was far enough from mirth in resuming it. "'I couldn't imagine,' he said, "'that you cared anything for me, "'when you warned another against me. "'If I could—' "'You put me in a false position from the beginning.' I ought to have sympathized with her and helped her, instead of making the poor child feel that somehow I hated her. I couldn't even put her on guard against herself, though I knew all along that she didn't really care for you, but was just in love with her own fancy for you. Even after you were engaged I ought to have broken it off. I ought to have been frank with her. It was my duty. But I couldn't without feeling that I was acting for myself, too, and I would not submit to that degradation. No, I would rather have died. I dare say you don't understand. How could you? You are a man, and the kind of man who couldn't. At every point you made me violate every principle that was dear to me. I loathed myself for caring for a man who was in love with me when he was engaged to another. Don't think it was gratifying to me. It was detestable. And yet I did let you see that I cared for you. Yes, I even tried to make you care for me, falsely, cruelly, treacherously. You didn't have to try very hard, said Colville, with a sort of cold resignation to his fate. Oh, no, you were quite ready for any hint. I could have told her for her own sake, That she didn't love you, but that would have been for my sake, too. And I would have told you if I hadn't cared for you and known how you cared for me. I've saved at least the consciousness of this from the wreck.' "'I don't think it's a great treasure,' said Colville. "'I wish that you had saved the consciousness of having been frank even to your own advantage. "'Do you dare to reproach me, Theodore Colville?' "'but perhaps I've deserved this, too.' "'No, Lena, you certainly don't deserve it, "'if it's unkindness from me. "'I won't afflict you with my presence. "'But will you listen to me before I go?' "'She sank into a chair in sign of assent. "'He also sat down. "'He had a dim impression that he could talk better "'if he took her hand, "'but he did not venture to ask for it. He contented himself with fixing his eyes upon as much of her face as he could make out in the dusk, a pale blur in a vague outline of dark. "'I want to assure you, Lena, Lena, my love, my dearest, as I shall call you for the first and last time—that I do understand everything, as delicately and fully as you could wish, all that you have expressed— and all that you have left unsaid. I understand how high and pure your ideals of duty are, and how heroically, angelically, you have struggled to fulfill them, broken and borne down by my clumsy and stupid selfishness from the start. I want you to believe, my dearest love, you must forgive me, that if I didn't see everything at the time, I do see it now and that I prize the love you kept from me far more than any love you could have given me to the loss of your self-respect. It isn't logic, it sounds more like nonsense, I am afraid, but you know what I mean by it. You are more perfect, more lovely to me than any being in the world, and I accept whatever fate you choose for me. I would not win you against your will if I could. You are sacred to me. If you say we must part, I know that you speak from a finer discernment than mine. And I submit. I will try to console myself with the thought of your love, if I may not have you. Yes, I submit. His instinct of forbearance had served him better than the subtlest art. His submission was the best defense. He rose with a real dignity, and she rose also. Remember, he said, that I confess all you accuse me of, and that I acknowledge the justice of what you do, because you do it. He put out his hand, and took the hand which hung nerveless at her side. You are quite right. Good-bye. He hesitated a moment. "'May I kiss you, Lena? He drew her to him, and she let him kiss her on the lips. "'Good-bye,' she whispered. "'Go.' "'I am going.' Effie Bowen ran into the room from the kitchen. "'Aren't you going to take—' She stopped and turned to her mother. She must not remind Mr. Colville of his invitation. That was what her gesture expressed.' Colville would not say anything. He would not seize his advantage and play upon the mother's heart through the feelings of her child, though there is no doubt that he was tempted to prolong the situation by any means. Perhaps Mrs. Bowen divined both the temptation and the resistance. Tell her, she said, and turned away. I can't go with you to-night, Effie, he said, stooping toward her for the inquiring kiss that she gave him i am going away and i must say good-bye the solemnity of his voice alarmed her going away she repeated yes away from florence i am afraid i shall not see you again the child turned from him to her mother again who stood motionless then as if the whole calamitous fact had suddenly flashed upon her she plunged her face against her mother's breast I can't bear it, she sobbed out, and the reticence of her lamentation told more than a storm of cries and prayers. Colville wavered. Oh, you must stay, said Lena, in the self-contemptuous voice of a woman who falls below her ideal of herself. End of chapter 23 of Indian Summer by William Dean Howells Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.